Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View. Hi, Sarah. It's been you know, so long since we chatted. We super need, we super need the like, doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. <laughs> which because... for those of you who are not like, I don't want to, you know, just if you, you have a little less mileage than us, you might not know that that's a reference to Wayne's World. And if you haven't <laughs> seen that show, it's time. It's time to go watch that very classic movie. If anything, for the Bohemian Rhapsody singing in the car scene. I feel like it's become a lot more time relevant to watch that film right now. That's, uh, all. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. I much prefer than a Bill and Ted reference, but I can also tell you that Bill and Ted is super popular with my young boys. So either of those... <laughs> Time warping Isn't movies. Isn't that just Keanu Reeves going, whoa, the whole movie? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> yeah. But I rem- there was like a period of time, I think it was like a year or two ago, where Colin Finn watched that movie about 17 times. I-, I, don't- I was like, what are you getting out of this that you need to watch it? So anyway, moving right along. The reason that we're talking about time warp is because I'm currently on vacation. You're in some magical European destination right now. I don't even know where I am, frankly, because <laughs> people keep asking me where I'm going on the cruise. And it's ter- like, this is terrible. But part of what I love about this vacation and cruising in general is that I don't have to plan. I don't have to think. Like, the food is there. You tell them you're gluten-free, no corn, no tomatoes. And the food just arrives magically exactly as you need it. And... You know, I they just take me from place to place, and it's amazing. And so people ask me where I'm going. I'm like, well, we fly into Rome, and we fly out of London, and the cruise takes us in between those in between those places. <laughs> I know we're going to Spain. I think we're going to Portugal. I know we're going to Paris. And people are like, that's amazing. And I'm like, yeah, but that's three stops, and I think there's like seven stops. So <laughs> Gibraltar, that's another one. Anyway, so I'll be at one of those places, and I actually have absolutely no idea where I am at this moment that the show goes live. But that honestly is part of what I'm loving about being on this vacation. So I I have to say, so I, it's been quite fun to talk to you so frequently, like, you know, like it's, we just talked yesterday. (laughs) Like I, to me, this is really fun to like pre-record all of these episodes, but then like, I'm not going to get to talk to you for like a month. It's going to, that's going to be really weird. When I come back, we're going to have so much to talk about. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. That's true. That's true. Uh, so I hope you're having an amazing time right now. I hope you're seeing beautiful, just like super inspirational sites and you're just having like amazing positive cultural experiences and the boys minds are just being like opened up to like the global experience and, uh, and I hope all the food is amazing. 
Thank you. That's like a hundred percent of what we're excited about. History and culture and food. What more could you possibly that's want? It. That's it. That's, that's it. Maybe a little sunshine. <laughs> so how about you? What are you going to do while I'm gone? Well, uh, I, uh, I have like a, a big, a big thing that I'm going to, in the time warp, say has launched. <laughs> just put yourself put a little pressure on yourself right there. <laughs> just gave myself a deadline, didn't I? Uh, no, I, I actually quite anticipate that this will be almost old news by the time this episode airs. Um, but so I know we didn't we didn't really the last couple months have been so crazy busy, both of us traveling, all of the different things that we've been juggling. Um, and I didn't really get an opportunity to talk very much about the workshop I did at 1440 Multiversity in California over the President's Day long weekend in February, because I think we like pre-recorded before it. And then we dove into some topics after, and it just didn't, I think it was, there just wasn't a huge opportunity to do like a, a, a big like summary of how, how just amazing and profound that experience was for me. I know we kind of, we, we touched on it a little bit, but one of the things that I did and I am so it's one of those like, Good job, Sarah, patting myself on the back uh, for um, – it was one of those things that I – I uh, it, was, it was work. And then – and I was trying to figure out if I had – if I re- really should do it. But I, I did, and I'm so glad I did, which is I bring in a videographer. And um, I, I got a list of videographers from the 1440 Multiversity AV department that they'd had do – videography on the campus before that they really liked and had like collected their cards. And I interviewed a few of them and uh, really resonated with this one guy, Chris Wilson, who is amazing. Uh, Just giving him a total plug. Uh, He's based out of like Bay area ish in California and his website is thechriswilson.com. And he was so phenomenal to work with. He brought his wife as his um, assistant um, which was, she was also amazing. Um, and they were just, uh, they were just people who, you know, when you meet somebody and you're like, oh, we're on totally the same page instantly. Okay, go. <laughs> like that was, it was that experience, but it ended up being, um, you know, it was really, really long days. And Chris was able to capture not just the, you know, of almost 15 hours of seminar that I gave over that weekend. But he was able to capture a lot of the other experience. We filmed testimonial videos where people just sort of talked about uh, the full gamut. So there were pretty open-ended testimonials, like talk about the workshop, talk about the AIP, talk about, uh, you know, why you wanted, like, why my work has impacted your life, like how my work impacted your life and why you wanted to come to learn more from me. Like those yeah, whatever you want, whatever you want to say. And so what I've been working on uh, in the month and a half since that workshop has been pulling all of that video and photographs and um, sort of like anecdotal stories that that people have, have um, attendees have shared with me and given me permission to use. And then my own experiences and pulled all that together into like a digital version of the workshop. Uh, so, uh, it is now available. Um, you can go to it directly by going to the forward slash courses forward slash workshop dash 2019. And we can put links in the show notes. 
Um, but it's now available as a digital product. It's using the same course platform that I used to build the AIP lecture series. So it's similar in the sense that you sort of log in and then it's all there and navigatable, but you can jump around. It's instant access to everything. And it does. It has just just shy of 15 hours of seminars with printable PDFs of the slides. And it's all there in one place. And it to me, it's the reason why I did this is because I had probably 30 different people reach out before the workshop saying, um, I really wanted to go, but I can't make it work. Uh, are, please, are you going to record it? Because I, I, I would totally, like, I would really love to be able to watch all of those videos afterwards. And that made me realize that uh, travel for a lot of my audience is not something that is super accessible. And, um, you know, these live events are amazing. There's an energy in these live events that you just, there's, there's no way of like me standing in front of a camera and, uh, you know, like teaching that same content that can replicate the energy of doing the exact same content on a stage in front of a hundred people. Like that's just such an amazing experience. And so I'm really excited to be able to share at least the virtual version of that with, everybody who's interested. Um, and then what I've done is I've tried to give people sort of a glimpse into the like other experiences of the workshop. So all of the a hundred percent of the program sessions are in there with the slides, which I realize is what most people are actually interested in is all the educational pieces, but also there's just, there's pictures and discussion and, and people's stories of, you know, the food and the community, like it, people were like literally, making new best friends during that weekend, which was so phenomenal to watch. They were, you know, people were, so many of us with autoimmune disease feel very isolated in our day-to-day lives because we don't meet a lot of people with shared experience. But of course, everyone at this workshop had that shared experience. And so people were bonding and then realizing they lived close to each other and they were exchanging contact information. So that was a really wonderful aspect. And then of course, just the retreat aspect, like 1440 Multiversity is an amazing campus. Um, on top of, like, I was doing about six hours-ish of program session per day, sort of a, a long, you know, three, three and a half hour session in the morning, and then two to three hours in the afternoon. And then in between, there were free, like, completely included with your stay, right? So there was uh, free yoga, Pilates, meditation, Qigong, Tai Chi, like, classes, uh, there was a spa. The spa treatments weren't included. You had to pay extra for the spa treatments. But there was like time in the day where it was like open time. So you could go for a walk um, through old growth redwood forests or you could uh, go sit in the infinity hot tub or go into a sauna. Like all of those things. There was a fitness center. All of those things were included. Or you could pay extra for a therapeutic massage. Um, they did a lot of different, you know, it was a spa. So all the spa things. Um, and so what was really neat was being able to sort of pair the educational content. And I did, um, sort of a foundations of health beginning. So really talking about nutrient density, sleep, stress management, activity, connection, nature, time, and why those things are important. And then progressed into therapeutic diets. So I, I went through all of the top chronic illnesses. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity, cancer, uh, chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's, uh, asthma, and I feel like I'm missing one, autoimmune disease. There you go. Um, so I went through all of those and uh, how to 
how to basically up your diet game to, to get the most therapeutic potential. So talking about diet links that either prevent or, or mitigate those conditions by way of sort of emphasizing thematic elements like nutrient density. Um, and then, uh, then I went into a full three plus hour session on gut health, including, uh, a lot of new information on the gut microbiome and then a, um, a full session on healthy and sustainable weight loss. Um, so how to lose weight so that it's easy to keep it off basically, which included a lot of myth busting. Uh, so that was a really like fun way to like lean into some very controversial topics. And then I finished with like, there was this also thematic aspect to the whole weekend in terms of the curriculum, which was sort of scientific literacy and internet literacy. Um, so how do you, how do you read an article online and recognize it for high quality versus pseudoscience BS. And like that was sort of interwoven through, through everything. Whoa. I didn't know about that part. I think that's super cool. And something we talk about a lot and try to educate people on, but I think that mm -hmm. is an incredibly useful tool. Yeah. I interwove. So my, actually my introductory session was sort of a history of nutritional sciences, which really was to emphasize how young nutritional sciences are, like where we are in terms of state of knowledge with nutritional sciences compared to chemistry or physics or biology or astronomy. Um, and then I actually did a whole part of that session was about scientific research, different types of studies, what what value those different the data from different types of studies give us, um, statistics, like what does statistical significance mean? Um, and, and also that's really important for, like we see in this community, um, when people come from, uh, sort of an outside of us, a, a scientific background. I mean, I have this, like I have a PhD in medical biophysics. Like I have the, I have the perfect background to be able to dive into scientific research and be able to figure out the quality of the research really quickly. And I realized that that's, uh, that's a hard skill to learn without spending years of your life doing it. Um, but uh, I thought it was really important to to lay at least a foundation of like when you see someone say, "Oh, that study was only done in twelve people. We can't, we can't, like, we just, we won't, we have to dismiss it." When you see people dismissing science in our community, it often is dismissing science because it doesn't agree with their message. And I really don't think you can do that. I think that's fundamentally wrong. And the the most common reasons that people will do, oh, it wasn't, uh, you know, people understand needs to be blinded, right? Oh, it wasn't blinded. Well, you can't blind diet studies. Like people can see what they're eating. Like um, and it was, uh, you know, oh, it's small, you know, it's a small sample size. Well, if the magnitude of the effect and the standard is high enough and the standard deviation is low enough, a small sample size is all you need to have statistical significance. And what statistical significance means is there's a high probability that your sample is representative of the population. Like that's, that's what it means. So then that means you have confidence that your difference that you're seeing is a true difference that represents the difference in the population. So I went through all of that. And then there was a fair bit of, you know, throughout like um, just trying to uh, show some science, show the importance of mechanistic studies. So that to me is, you know, people often say, oh, it's an animal study, so it doesn't matter. And like that's, if it's uh, an interventional animal study, 
yes, you have to take that with a very big grain of salt because you're literally saying like, here's sick animal, here's drug, look, animals better give that drug to humans. Like that is the exact type of study that you really, like you have to test it in humans. It, it, it gives you an idea that it may work, but you don't know at what dose humans are more sensitive typically than rodents. So we might have side effects that aren't predicted in rodent models. Like that is the type of animal study that you need to definitely read with some skepticism. But a mechanistic study, which is the one that explains how a phenomenon is happening. So you have, say, your human study saying, um, so for example, there was a study uh, published a few weeks ago uh, that made the news all over the place. Basically, eggs cause cardiovascular disease. And it's a really interesting study. I'm, I'm working on a blog post sort of dissecting the study. It's not one we can just dismiss. It's actually a really high-quality study. Uh, but there's some nuance in it. And so it's it's an interesting study to delve into. But that's the example of you know a study where people will just, hey, no, I don't think eggs cause cardiovascular disease. They didn't correct for blah, 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 so they must be wrong. Um, and my point is you know, actually, that's a really interesting study. There's a few things that they didn't do that I think probably should have been done, like genetic testing for APOE4. Um, but that study shows that there's an, an effect. You can't really move forward with that without the animal study that explains why. So once you have the animal study that says, yeah, and it's actually this compound in the egg white or the egg yolk that is triggering this uh, intracellular signaling pathway that causes this gene to be turned on. Like once you have those details of why there's a link, then you can say, aha, no, for sure there's a link. So mechanistic studies for me actually hold almost the most weight. There's, I would put those equal with like the randomized control double blind clinical trial. Um, and I even think that the randomized control double blind clinical trial, that should not be performed until you have the mechanistic insight from cell culture studies or animal studies. Like that is, that is the, the why. It's not just that A causes B, but like it's how does A cause B? And you don't know if there's a step in between until you have that why figured out. So that was very thematic throughout the workshop. And then I finished on a um, very, the other sort of main trend here is um, a lot of the directions that I see the alternative health movement going in that I fundamentally disagree with, like ketogenic diets, for example. Um, they come from, in part, some pseudoscience, which is why scientific literacy and internet literacy becomes thematic throughout that workshop. Um, but also, they come from this philosophy that's oh, like almost 50 years old now of describing a healthy diet by what you don't eat. And this is across the spectrum, right? So diets are low-fat, low-carb, uh, grain-free, they're uh, sodium-free, right? Like the DASH diet, like low sodium, or they're um, they're always de described by even paleo. Like the, the heart of paleo is no grains, no legumes, no dairy, no processed and refined foods, right? It's a list of what you don't eat. And I don't believe you can define uh, a diet based on what's not included. I think you have to define a diet based on the diet, like what is the actual food that makes up what's on your plate. That is what the definition of diet is. Um, but also when you, when you take on, uh, you know, I'm going to have for this new, this new diet, I'm going to try this new thing. And it's, I'm defining it, but why I don't eat when you hit the limits of what that diet can do for you in terms of health, what is the obvious next thing you're going to do? 
you're going to cut out more. Like it's, if you, if I cut out all these things and I got this far that of towards the goal that I wanted to get to now to get the rest of the way, well, clearly I just need to cut out more things, which is where I think carnivore diet has become like it, it, that philosophy is what has allowed the carnivore diet to become a thing. It's what has allowed the ketogenic diet to become a thing because, you know, if low carb was good, but not great, well, like clearly no carb is going to be even better. And I, it, really is a fundamentally flawed way to approach both structuring a diet, but also troubleshooting health. And so I wrapped up with a session that really talked about that philosophy and then, you know, taking this alternate approach of defining a diet based on what we do eat, um, having an understanding of why, I mean, it doesn't need to be a super deep understanding, but having at least a, a surface understanding of why we eat those things and then troubleshooting root causes, so sort of integrating functional medicine approach. And then I wrapped up with some really big picture concepts of, uh, you know, eating healthy for ourselves, but also in a way that looks after the planet. So getting into more of like the environmental sustainability aspects. So I, it was a it was a really great. Uh, I mean, I'm tooting my own horn here, but <laughs> I did have like feedback from there were there were surveys by every single participant so i can i can say the participants agreed with me um i was really proud of that arc in terms of the curriculum so all of that is in the digital product uh in addition to as much of a as much of a peek into the experience of being at the workshop live as is possible to create on a computer screen um you know obviously you can't taste the food or smell the forest <laughs> when you're, you know, creating something like this as a, as a digital product. But uh, that is available. And I think that probably our listeners would really love to go check that out. Also, uh, I have already agreed to do another one in 2020. And that's live for registration now. So, um, you know, maybe you're like digital product, digital product. I want to go there in person next year. So you can. It's going to be, again, over President's Day long weekend. So come spend Valentine's Day with me because that's the day it starts. It's February 14th to 17th. Um, the closest airport is San Jose Airport in California. And then it's like a 40-ish minute drive from the airport, depending on traffic. could be a little bit faster. could be a little bit slower. Uh, and it's a beautiful, beautiful campus. And you can get more information at thepaleomom.com slash go slash workshop. I created that. I, the link was actually really long. So I, I created I created the like short link to, to go quickly. Um, and uh, well, for anybody who attended in 2019, I'm swapping out about half of the content. So I the foundational stuff will stay the foundational stuff. And I'll probably do that every year. But of course, it'll be updated by any cool, relevant science that comes out over the next year. Um, and potentially the, the, I might lean on different, different parts in terms of, of focus next year, depending on where I am in my research that will happen organically. And then about another half of it's going to, to be swapped out. So I'm actually going to get into next year, I'm going to get into genetics. Um, and what, what, specific genes are really sort of important to to know what variant we have because they actually inform diet and lifestyle choices. So that's the focus is genes that actually tell you something about what would be optimal for your diet or for your lifestyle. Um, you know, there's obviously lots of genes that are just interesting, but I think I, the focus, because I don't want to... <laughs> 
I don't want to spend 15 hours just talking about genetics, which I easily could, but the focus is going to be really on that sort of actionable information from genetics and then different options for screening um, and how to protect your, your data when you're doing that. And then um, I'm also going to do sort of a deeper dive into phytochemicals as the other big plan and what those are and um, what they do for us. And then like what's, what's again, actionable. So like, how do you, how do you up your phytochemical content easily and sort of painlessly? So that's, that's going to be where in 2019, there was this focus on sort of healthy weight loss, um, a lot of sort of myth busting. I did a pretty intense critique of the ketogenic diet. Um, All, all of that content is, getting put thrown in the vault. It's only available on the digital product. And then that's going to be replaced with this deeper dive into genetics and um, phytochemicals. So uh, yeah, so the 2020 event is already available for registration. I don't have registration numbers, but I'll be keeping people up to date uh, in my newsletter. So if you haven't signed up for my newsletter yet, please do. You can do that just off the link off of my homepage um, because uh, I expect based on every single person I talked to at the conference, which was almost every single attendee, um, said, I'm coming back next year and I'm bringing my sister, my mother, my best friend, my two cousins, my, right. Like it was always this like list of, oh yeah, I can't wait to come back next year and I'm going to bring five people. So we think we're going to sell out next year. Um, so if anybody's like sure that they for sure want to do this, my re- my recommendation would be to not wait to register because um, you definitely want to make sure that you don't wait so long that there isn't a spot. I'm super jazzed to be able to watch back the video on the portions that you were talking about in terms of um, – the history of nutrition and where we are. Like, as you were talking about that, I started thinking about it. And, you know, when people first went paleo, it was this idea of, well, look where we are in a scale of modern agriculture and food. And then you look Mm -hmm. at how humans have been eating for this amount of time. And it's just like this tiny slice that our bodies have not had an opportunity to evolve to process food. And that concept of a time clock, like how how long humans have been on the earth when you look at, you know, the history of the earth. And so the idea of looking at how much we've been looking at nutrition from a scientific perspective on health, and then how that compares to other sciences blew my mind. Like, as you were talking, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I was like, that's genius to think about, you know. We've only known about the existence of vitamins for 106 years. Like to think about how much we've learned, for example, from astronomy and science. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we used to think that the, you know, sun revolved around the earth at one right. point, right? And, Thank you, Copernicus. And that the earth was flat. And that... Thank you, ancient Greek philosophers. So this is... I'm going to give it... I'm going to give... I'm like giving some of the content from the workshop away, but hopefully there's 50. I know. And we do we do actually have a show to get to. I'm just... My my brain yeah. is, is a little bit like, hey, I want that. <laughs> we figured out the earth is round 2,300 years ago. We figured out that vitamins were a chemical that existed in... Uh, vitamin A was discovered in 1913. So that's just... That's... 300 BC, 1913. That's that's the difference in terms of the like major discovery that launched a field of research. Um, so 
I, I think to me, that's really important to keep in mind because it emphasizes the necessity for staying flexible um, in terms of dietary guidelines because we need to be open to new information because we really don't know all of it yet. Um, and that is one of the things sort of, again, getting into that sort of scientific literacy part. Um, I get very frustrated when I see influencers not her influencers being very rigid, right? So influencers that have, um, some kind of, uh, message that is intertwined with their brand. And I think often, I think it's a very sort of, when you see people dismissing science, I don't know that it's necessarily intentional, but I think it is linked to, um, feeling threatened, right? So if I accept that this thing that I've been telling all of my followers to do for the last five years might not be right, then I'm going to lose my, my way of making a living. Right. So, I mean, that's, that is, um, that's a conundrum. I mean, how do you, there, I think there are really graceful ways to handle that, but, um, I think that is where we see that rigidity is, is there. And I find it really frustrating because it's not doing the public a service to stick to ideas that are being debunked in the scientific literature. And with that mic drop, maybe we can tell you listeners <laughs> that we, we're going to move on, but you mm-hmm. can, um, I love that you have this and when I come back, I'm going to hit you up for it. Um, <laughs> this available to listeners if they want to watch back the educational or have the experience or, and, or sign up for the next one. Cause there will be new material. And, uh, in the meantime, we're going to move on to talk about a topic near and dear to my heart, mm. which is eating nose to tail. And I just want to recap for those of you that might be new listeners. I was actually a vegetarian for seven years growing up, and it was based off of the idea of not wanting to kill or hurt animals. And actually, my youngest son, Wesley, is going through this experience himself right now where he's toying with the idea of vegetarianism and we're talking about like what that means and why one would or would not want to do that in their life and how we can respect animals in a different way that we can give them a full and healthy happy life we can um participate in the circle of uh, consuming them that respects them, right? Like yeah. when, when they lose their life, they're, they're losing it in a dignified way and all of that kind of stuff. And it's been a passion of mine since going paleo. And, you know, I was one of the first people, I think, to really talk about go to a farm, learn, you know, learn who your farmer is and do all that kind of stuff. And fortunately for me, I live in an area that is very rich farmland. The Virginia area has an enormous amount of farmland and influenced by Joel Salatin, whose farm is here, Polyface Farm, was a pioneer in the food movement of mm-hmm converting traditional farms to sustainable, humanely raised farms, and why that is both good for the earth, good for the animals, and good for humans. And so um, when we talk about this topic, I just want to put that context out there because I I personally am going through it with Wesley right now. There's um, 
two girls on the street, one of whom is his best friend, um, who have gone vegetarian in the last year. And like all peer groups, when you're a young person, like that influences, you know, your own decisions. And there are concepts that he's dealing with right now. Like he told me, it was cute. We We were like, if you could have one wish for the earth, what would it be? And we were talking about it and he's always said that his thing is feeding the homeless, that he has a lot of compassion for, for the homeless. And he's recently switched to um, finding a way to give people healthy protein that doesn't kill animals, which is just like a, a, a fascinating concept for me. And I think is something that science is looking into as well, that Matt is mm-hmm. fascinated by growing meat and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah. I don't know that I really have an opinion on it yet because it's not like... I haven't dived into the science exactly, exactly what they're doing. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I don't know enough to have an opinion, but I'm a little worried about it. But yeah. They're like growing heme proteins in uh, like test tubes. They're getting bacteria to, to grow heme proteins to add to like soy-based burgers to make them taste like beef because that is the main protein in red meat that makes it taste red meaty, which is interesting. But yeah, I don't, I don't, like I haven't dived into like, is there a difference in the protein structure? How is there other proteins that are made that go along with this that might have a different health? Like I haven't, there's lots of questions. What kind of additives are in there? Yeah, totally. A hundred percent. But it's on top of mind for me because this is something that we're, you know, personally talking about in our family and we're talking about how grains can also be detrimental to the earth and the land mm-hmm. when we only harvest one type of crop on the same land over and over again, like we're killing that land versus, you know, when a chicken eats the bugs out of a cow's poop and, you know, that whole cycle and how it actually refertilizes the earth and it is a circle of life and how that's important. And I think for me, that is what really helped me feel better about consuming animals is knowing that I was participating in a healthy circle of life that gives back to the earth rather than Mm -hmm. takes away from the earth. And so I love Catherine's question this week and I'm excited to tackle it because we haven't talked about it in quite a while. I think we, we kind of beat this topic to death for a while when our cookbook Beyond Bacon came out (laughs) a couple of years ago. But it was, it's like how I'm all excited about talking about the microbiome now because that's my new book. Like that was your your baby of a snout to tail cookbook like that was the thing it makes sense to me that it's we we definitely i mean i think our listeners will have noticed without us having saying it <laughs> that we go through like cycles in terms of what is interesting to us to talk to and if we talked about something on the podcast that wasn't interesting to either of us it would be a pretty terrible podcast so this is like a necessity to like keeping it hopefully engaging and informative but yeah, no, it, ha- it has been a while. And maybe because by the time a book actually finally makes it out and you've done all the marketing, you're like so over it. That does happen. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like, okay, I'm done with this. Yeah, um, like, okay. Uh-huh. So why don't we jump in to ask Catherine's question? Because I feel like it'll, it'll open the floodgates again. But I just wanted to point people to, we have done a lot of shows on this. We'll put some link in the, sh- in the show notes. And I just want to thank Catherine for bringing this to the forefront again, because I think in the, in the context of, you know, we talked about sustainability with your workshop and different kinds of things mm-hmm. like that. It is important to consider and to figure out how to incorporate um, into your life if you're at that phase, at that step. Catherine says, 
I need more awful recipes. I'm eating paleo AIP and my extended family is slaughtering some pigs. I want to use the whole pig, but I don't know how to fix the feet, ears, or eyes. And I don't have recipes that I like for the melt, head meat, or tail. I find plenty of recipes for liver and eat it regularly. I also have made fried pig rinds, cracklings, and of course, lard. I love Stacy's book, Beyond Bacon, but want to find more recipes that I can eat as AIP with few reintroductions. I currently have pig feet and ears in my freezer from last season, and we are about to butcher again. No one else wants to fix these parts, but I would end up with extra and free offal if only I knew how to prepare it. And I might also convince extended family members to eat it too. I love your show and have been listening weekly for a few years now. Thanks. No, Catherine. Thank you. Well, first of all, I just want to say that I have fallen into a pattern with Ofal that I have a couple of go-to recipes that I really like for certain kinds of parts, and I stick with those. So while I have a book, and Sarah has a ton of recipes as well, um, and we both have recipes on our blog, and we can talk about those. I have a certain application that I like for certain organ meats. Um, and I also know that certain organ meats are just not my family's favorite and they sit in the bottom of the freezer and end up, you know, getting freezer burned and going bad or we feed them to the animals or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so I think it's important to, to just say that that's okay. That while you can look for a variety of things, um, and it's great that you're using, you know, the skin for cracklins and the fat for lard and those kinds of things, I'm going to say I always use feet for broth. Like, I know that mm-hmm. there are recipes out there where you can smoke or you can fry or you can do whatever to different um, recipes for pig's feet. I personally love pork broth. I love it mixed with other things. I love it on its own. I love it in food. And it's not easy to get pork broth because when we get half pigs from our farmer, there isn't a lot of like joints. There's um, more joints. It's a larger animal and a cow and stuff like that. And I I don't know what's happening with the pig. We just the bones that we get are not as connected they have those to short little red. legs. Yeah. That's all it is. They're just a short, teeny tiny little, legs. Little legs. <laughs> um, and, and we get bone in shoulders, right? Because it's mm-hmm. better for smoking and for cooking. And you can't, the broth is not the same in terms of nutrient value once you've cooked the meat on the bone to then turn it into broth. And so pig's feet is one of those things that I'm like, that is broth. A hundred percent. Like you just, it's, I set it aside and I'm like, that's my broth pile. So I don't have a lot of recipes for that. And, and my point is that's okay. Cause that works for us. And that allows us to eat that part of the animal. Um, and if you're looking for variety, there's going to be a lot more variety with things like liver. Um, and I know Sarah, you have a lot of, um, like kidney type recipes because mm-hmm. you love that. For me, I have one go-to and that's simply like putting it into a shepherd's pie kind of thing where it's all mixed up with different meat and different flavors with vegetables and then either like a collie mash or a potato mash or a mix, like a sweet potato, half sweet potato, half collie is actually my favorite um, on top because it has a little sweetness. Um, and that's the only way that we can palate that kind of organ meat. And mm-hmm. again, that's okay because we're using it and that's the recipe for us. So um, just putting that out there that 
while variety might be the spice of life sometimes, um, you know, if we're buying half an animal or a whole animal once or twice a year, it's not like we have a ton of those organ meats in and of itself. So we don't um, focus a lot on variety. Yeah, I actually, I would say I have three like go-to ways that I prepare things that are um, that I don't want to eat straight, right? So I do love just like sauteed kidney, but I'm not a big fan of like liver and onions. Um, that's, I would rather not eat liver straight. Um, so I have three sort of go-tos. So I also put pig's feet into broth. I even, I made, um, chicken broth maybe like a week and a half ago and I found a pig ear and, and two pig feet in my freezer and I threw them into the chicken broth and it made that broth like it was still, it was like a hybrid between chicken and pork. It was so flavorful. It was so gelatinous. Um, so actually that is one of the things that I do with pig ears is also throw it into broth because it's a super rich in glycine. And so, um, I mean, you could also pig ears are, are mostly skin. So you could also do like cracklins with, with pig ears as well. Um, but that, that's my sort of go-to for, uh, that type of tissue hawks, I might throw into soup. So even if it's not smoked, I find hawks give soup a really nice, there's something about, um, the marrow from the bone and that little bit of meat, um, that's just really lovely or it's really good. I'll sometimes throw hawks into the Instapot, cook them for like 45 minutes until they're like falling apart. And then put something like collard greens, like a really dense green, into the pot with some of the the broth that the hawks cooked in and throw the hawk, the meat from the hawks back in. And then that's just, it's like a meaty greens. It's basically like Russ Crandall's meaty greens recipe. And it's so delicious. P.S. Like such a good recipe. So Mm -hmm. it's one of our go-tos. Yeah. And I... It's delicious with non-smoked hawks because often when you get – when you're getting the whole pig, you'll get the ham, but it's not – it's really just a roast. Like it's not smoked or you'll get the hawks, but it, they're not smoked hawks. So it's a little bit different than what you would get if you were buying those those same cuts of meat in the grocery store. You either smoke it yourself and then you have the same thing or you find different ways to use it, right? Like slow cooking a ham – you have to slow cook ham because it's so tough if you don't smoke it first. But – um those are my like go-tos for the, those pieces. And I would say tail would be sort of, I would probably treat it very similarly. Um, but in terms of like something like melt, which is spleen, I do this often with heart meat, liver. I've done it with kidney. Um, the two things that I, that I go to, one is like a stew. And often what I'll do is I'll mix it. Like I think, I think of a steak and kidney stew, right? Steak and kidney pot pie. Uh, that's a mixture of a muscle meat and an organ meat. And it doesn't have to be kidney. It can be something else. And um, and you can change the proportion. If something has a really strong flavor, maybe chop that up really small. So there's a, a, a traditional French cuisine method where they take the liver and saute it and then push it through a sieve into the broth. So they'll do this for like rabbit stew and they'll take the rabbit liver and push it through a sieve and into the broth. And then it gives the broth this like richness that, that is really like unique and wonderful without it being a like, Oh, and then I just took the bite of liver from the stew. Um, so you can, you can do it in a chop it up fine. So it's a, it's not, you know, it doesn't, it, it sort of permeates everything without being overwhelming because it sort of dilutes it. 
Uh, or if it's something that's really, really delicious, you can just let it, you know, kidney can stand on its own in a, in a stew. Um, but the other thing that I will do if it's something I'm like, I don't know what to do with this is I will just grind it up in my food processor and add it to ground beef or if it's, you know, from pig, I would add it to ground pork and make something with that ground meat. So my go-to is hamburger patties. Um, my hamburger patties always have ground liver in them, but, um, you know, the ones that I have in my fridge right now, I think we're at, I think, I think, I think there's one patty left. I usually make six or seven pounds at a time. Uh, I just put them all on baking sheets and bake them until they're cooked and then throw them in the freezer. And then we always have hamburger patties in the freezer. If I have a night during the week where I'm like, uh, I can't do it. And we just have hamburger patties with sometimes like raw vegetables and sweet potato chips on the side and keep it really easy, easy. Um, so we'll, we'll even eat that hamburger patty, like either like a lettuce wrap, like a bunless burger, or it's what my dad used to call poor man's steak. Um, so we just, you know, eat it like that's the meat on the side of the plate. Um, but I've ground so many different things and mixed it with ground beef and, um, what you can get away with in terms of proportion of other things to ground beef has a lot to do with the, how strong the flavor is of the other thing. So are you really trying to mask it? Then you might want to mix like one pound of the other thing to like five pounds of the ground beef and make it really dilute. Is it like heart meat, which has a really rich muscly flavor already? Uh, you can, I actually count heart meat as the same as ground beef. So I'll actually use heart meat to dilute still liver or kidney or something else. Um, it just needs something with a little bit more fat in there for, for a hamburger patty. I so would just that's say, it. yeah, with heart, it's a really lean, but it's also, um, almost uh, metallic tasting because mm. of uh, the iron rich nature of it. And it's super, super good for you. I have found that I actually prefer heart in jerky and mm. that allows you to marinate it with something that'll break down the meat and soften it a little bit. So like a teriyaki type marinade, or you could, I really actually kind of like an orange type, like if you yeah. add, um, orange to it a little bit. It breaks up the iron flavor. So, um, I just wanted to say heart while you can grind it up and you can use it like meat, it, it is completely different than liver in terms of, um, the texture and the flavor is a lot like muscle meat because it is a muscle instead of, um, a, a true organ, but it can have a bit of an iron rich texture. So mixing it or taste. So mix mixing it with other things or marinating it is mm -hmm. ideal. And for me, I, love I, I genuinely love kind of like you with kidneys you weirdo um <laughs> heart as jerky it's my favorite yeah. I mean when we get a heart I next to the um feet that become broth the heart becomes jerky <laughs> like, it's just like okay also, that's reserved I, for that I also really like making it into kebabs but for the same marinating reason mm -hmm. so um you know cutting it up into like one inch pieces throwing it on skewers and then marinating it like overnight in some really flavorful uh, I like, um, again, plug to Russ Crandall, um, Russ Crandall's Korean, um, short rib marinade that, that marinade, um, he has it in both, uh, paleo takeout and in, um, ancestral, ancestral kitchen. Wait, what's the name of Russ's first book? Is that it? Ancestral table. Ancestral and table. And paleo takeout. Yeah, yeah. I had a, I had a, it's ancestral he, something. He the, also has so many recipes on his blog. He does. Yeah. yeah. So that, uh, the that, domestic man.com. 
that Korean short rib recipe, the marinade for that works with, so it's just, it's just deliciousness. We, and um, we have a, a recipe like that, Sarah, that's already AIP. Cause with Russes, you often have to adapt. And it has he does, sesame oil, I think. He, yeah. he does have instructions for adapting, but, um, we have one in Beyond Bacon for Asian flavored ribs that includes molasses as well, which mm. is nice to, um, balance out that more savory nature of a heart or any really any muscle meat so okay why don't we just run down the different parts and say how we've eaten them before okay does that make sense sure okay let's let's start we're not going to say nose to tail because the nose is often below some of the other parts so let's start (laughs) but you do you want to start with pig snout Okay. I've never gotten a pig snout in anything that I've seen. Farmer's market. And actually I had to get, I had to seek out getting ahead for Beyond Bacon because the way that Virginia, so so this is just a little education and information that I'll share from Beyond Bacon. Um, Each state processes meat differently. So when it goes to be slaughtered, depending on the state and the service that the farmer is using, there are different methods for that. And in Virginia, because of the method that must be used, the head is not available and the blood is not available. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't make blood sausage and I had to seek out a head from D.C. or Maryland because I couldn't get it in Virginia. Um, And so it could be the fact that we're going to talk about different parts and you're not going to see them at your farmer's market or your farmer might tell you he can't get it for you or whatever. And I think... Part of that for me, I mean, I I sought it out for Beyond Bacon to write the book for people who do have it. But part of that for me is like, okay, that part doesn't need to be used or, you know, whatever whatever the case may be. And I'm not going to worry about it. It's the, I just don't want anything to go to waste, right? And that's, to me, that was my biggest priority. So um, if we talk about a part and you can't access it. First of all, there are ways to, to do that. Like I said, go by a nearby state or, or whatever, but also just let it go. It's okay. <laughs> Life will go yeah. on. I mean, I'm I'm not sure that I've ever had, I don't think I've ever had snout. I've seen it. Um, my fifth grade teacher brought one into the classroom and I even think that might be the only time I've even seen a pig snout. Well, it's, it's very... Um, collagen rich and it's fatty. It's like Mm -hmm. eating skin. So I I equate it to um, what my mom calls a turkey tail. Um, Mm -hmm. And so those are often best like roasted or fried. That's the best part of the turkey. Yeah. So I cook turkey just for the tail. So for those people who are like, oh my gosh, ew, an ear or a snout, honestly, if you like chicken skin, you're going to love that stuff because Mm -hmm. it is basically like a giant version of that that you can just bite into and eat. And as Sarah says, uh, it's delicious. So uh, that application, I would also say for ears, the same way that I suggest making um, skin and cracklins in the book is if you boil them and then dry them out either in a dehydrator or low oven temp for a while and then fry them, that's how they get puffy and soft. So if you're wondering like why you're frying your skin and it's leathery and hard and stiff. And it's cracking your molars in half. Yeah. That's, that's the difference. So, and 
like I said, I do, it's, that is all in Beyond Bacon as well as there's like a whole nutritional write up on why this stuff is good for you, but we've done all of that before. So we're not going to go into that today. All right. So we talked about snout. I think jowl, jowl, ears. Jowl is pretty easy to get. Jowl is so good. It's the best part of the pig. It's like the, it's the head bacon. Yes. So another food that is considered a fall, but is really not. It's just another muscle meat. It's like pork belly in terms of its texture and its fat to protein ratio. I would definitely recommend roasting it as kind of a a basic starting point. So good smoked. And it's also really good smoked. So just good like smoked. just like a pork belly. Those yeah. are the two Actually, best ways. Yep. The my um the local farmer that I um buy the most meat locally from um smokes the jowl and sells sells it as jowl bacon. Like I don't even need to do anything. It's already jowl bacon and it is so much better than regular bacon. Because there's something about the there's something about the texture that is like it's just sheer perfection um and i think it's i think it's the collagen the has a little bit more collagen a little bit more connective tissue in the meat uh than the belly does it's it's so many kinds of awesome all right head the whole head the brains the the brains and the whole head the whole head like i said i sought out to make for Beyond Bacon. And I actually took to the butcher to help me process because when I got it, it was literally a whole head. And they're pigs, little tiny legs, giant heads. And it's a little intimidating. If you're not a butcher, I mean, even we were working on a nose to tail book and I got this head and I was like, oh my, this is really intense. (laughs) What am I going to do with this? Yes. So it's great to have a relationship with your butcher, your farmer, somebody like that who... Um, I brought it to him and he helped process it for me, i.e., you know, put it into pieces that would fit into a pot. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a recipe for head cheese in Beyond Bacon. And I know that that sounds disgusting, but I made a lot of things in Beyond Bacon and that was not an offensive one. <laughs> like, I had people. Oh, head cheese is so delicious. I mean, it's like a... I know it sounds disgusting. <laughs> no, but it's like uh, like a like a spreadable like a pate. But it's I think it's tastier than like a liver pate. It is. By, it like, is, a, and by that's a mile. That's the thing that I want to just impart on people is that there's so much meat on the head. So we're talking about the jowls. We're talking about all the different parts that are on the head, and when you are cooking it that stuff is falling off and it's going into something that you're going to then strain and blend and turn into a loaf type product. And because it's not entirely organ meat, i.e. brain and eyeballs that will also melt into it. Sorry, TMI, everybody, but this is what it is. (laughs) Um, And those are super nutrient rich foods, by the way. Um, It turns into a more meaty flavor and texture than it turns into an organ meat type flavor. Right. And I remember my my grandfather, it was one of the last experiences I had with him. We were writing this book and I, I took to him a couple of different recipes and he grew up in 
like a very, uh, he grew up during the depression in Pennsylvania and they had zero money. You know, he had a lot of brothers and sisters and they raised bunnies for the family to consume. Like it was, it was a situation during the depression. And so he was raised, his taste buds were formed on organ meat because it was the most affordable at the time. And I remember him being so excited that we were making all these recipes because he couldn't, they reminded him of home and growing up and it wasn't something that he could get all the time. And I took him the head cheese and he lost his mind. He was like, this <laughs> is so good. It reminds me of growing up. And um, the herbs and flavors that you put in it can obviously be changed, but we made it really kind of light with thyme and different flavors like that. And so I just, I know that it sounds disgusting and the idea sounds overwhelming and intimidating, but let's say you go to your butcher and you say, I'm going to try to do this thing just to try it out. And how much would it be to get ahead? And can you process it for me? First of all, it's going to be super affordable because nobody wants the head. And second of all, it's going to be super nutrient dense and you're going to be able to make enough that you put it in the, you, once you're finished with your head cheese loaves, you're going to have several from one head and they'll last you the whole year because it's not like you're eating a whole loaf at once. You're, you know, putting a little bit on, you know, uh, vegetables or, you know, gluten-free bread or whatever it is that you want to do. Um, And, you know, is that something that I do all the time? Absolutely not. But was it special for my grandfather? Was it, you know, a great way to respect the animal and use all the parts? Absolutely. So uh, I think the only other thing to talk about about that's like from the neck up, and then we'll have to talk about the neck, um, is brains by itself. Because those, again, like where I am, they're really hard to find. Um, But I have in a restaurant before had uh, scrambled, like scrambled brain and egg. Like it was. Mm. I can see that texture wise, fatty wise. It's like a classic way to eat brain is to basically, I think you typically um, like pre-cook the brain. So I think you typically boil it probably in like an acidified water. So like probably a water with a little vinegar in it and a little salt. And then I think it's typically like chopped and, and mixed into scrambled eggs. Um, so I've never prepared that myself um, because I can't, it's really hard. I've, I've asked all my local farmers like, can you get the brain? Can you get that? And they're all like, no, no, that part we can't sell in Georgia. Um, but it's delicious. It's, it's just um, – it's really non-offensive. And when it's mixed in eggs, it's the same texture as scrambled eggs. So it doesn't – there's no – I think sometimes with organ meat – the shock value is in the texture, not in the flavor. Um, sometimes it's sometimes it's the combo, but uh, I think that when you can make organ meat have a familiar texture, like grinding it up and mixing it with ground beef to make hamburger patties, or like turning it in a stew where all of the meat's going to be soft, like that's where it suddenly becomes a familiar food, even if it's the first time you've ever had it. I personally have never had brains on its own because it's hard for me to find. And then when I got the whole head, I I wanted to use the whole head. Um, But I, 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 anyway, I'm just going to echo what you said sounds right based on what I read and what I can imagine the texture to be and all that kind of stuff. Um, I would be interested who can access them because I mean, Mm -hmm. I got the head from somewhere and I think it's just um, an alternative slaughtering in terms of, you know, who can and cannot have it. I, and I'm, I'm curious where it's coming from. Yeah. I, I know some local farmers here who sell their live animals. Um, 
and there is a community, I think it's sort of uh, Indian Pakistani community that will buy, say, a, like a live goat and slaughter it themselves. And then you would be able to get <laughs> you'd be able to have not the lead problem, uh, which is why they don't they don't sell the head. Um, and uh, and that, I guess, you know, if you could interface with that community, that might be it. That might be an entrance into it. But um, I think any like USDA approved meat processing facility is going to have the same the same problem because that's um, that is a federal level accreditation for for a processing plant. I think that was well stated. I like how you worked around those details. Okay. <laughs> What's I was next? trying to not say the thing. Um, do you want to talk about neck roasts? I know it's not really awful, but it still feels like. Yeah. A neck roast is one of the few really collagen rich um, opportunities to consume pig in particular. And I love using it in a broth type experience, almost like a pot roast. So you mm-hmm. can make a whole bunch of different kinds of recipes like that. But if you're cooking the meat in a liquid so that it allows it to get really collagen rich and um, for the meat to get tender and kind of a slow roasting technique, that's my favorite with neck. Because um, like I said, it's it's basically the pork equivalent of a pot roast. Um, yeah. so. I've made I've made your neck recipe out of Beyond Bacon that's done in the Instapot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that recipe is ridiculously awesome it's it might be my favorite recipe out of beyond bacon but that's and that's up against like lard brownies so (laughs) that's that's a tough one um but that yep i would say uh catherine has beyond bacon so she ends ends up with a neck roast that's her go-to for that one you can just play with the flavors on that in so many different ways but if Mm -hmm. you just that technique to me is the penultimate because it tenderizes the meat and it allows the collagen of the joints to come through. And those are the two things about the neck that make it really special. And again, if you served that food, no one would know that it wasn't the muscle meat of anything else because it's just muscle meat. Like it's, there's nothing special about it. And that way you're using a a part of the animal that might otherwise go wasted. Yep. All right. uh, Sweetbreads. I'm trying, I'm trying as much as I can to work from the head down and I feel like that's the next. So I'm just going to lump all of these into the same category that I mentioned earlier. Any sort of really flavorful or, um, aromatic organ meat (laughs) I'm going to put in one category. So, So melt would go into this category too then. And probably I would even put liver and kidney. I feel like those are all liver is an exception for me. And I'll talk about that separately, but kidney. Yes. You're going to put kidney kidney. So sweetbreads is the thymus gland melt. As I mentioned, is the spleen. So we're going to put all of those in the same category of grinding up and using with other things Mm -hmm. and then covering it with a whole bunch of other flavors. That's the only way that we palatably will enjoy it. Now, of course, there are other applications where we, you know, we'll stomach it down or whatever. And we tried a bunch of recipes when we were testing the book. And that's the only way that we will continue to consume it in a voluntary sort of way. (laughs) I mean, there are traditional preparations for all of those. Like I think sweetbreads are typically boiled and then cut into pieces and then battered and deep fried or like um, broiled in served in like 
melted butter. Like there's other, especially I think like French uh, cuisine really embraces organ meat. There's a lot of traditional French preparations for a lot of these. Um, and then other cultures, right? There's a lot of traditional Asian preparations of a lot of these things as well. Um, I realized that we jumped down to thymus and we never talked about tongue. Oh, tongue is so delicious. So that my favorite way to do that is like a carnitas type application. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a technique to remove the outer layer in a way that is easier. You don't want to have to like do that difficult. Mm, Well, you just you just boil it first and then it comes off pretty easily. Or if you do a slow roast tender kind of approach, um, Mm. then it peels off super easy at the end. Um, But I would say that that's the only way that you could really tell the tongue wasn't muscle meat because tongue is a muscle. Um, And my kids, both with pig and with cow, cows have a much larger tongue. um, And that's something that I can get from the farmer and farmer's market and buy lots of for really affordably. And it makes super amazing shredded type meat from a barbacoa or a carnitas perspective. It's super good from a breakfast application with eggs. It's great for lunch or dinner and like a pseudo taco type application. Um, Or, you know, we like to do taco bowls kind of approach. And when we use it with tongue, the kids all say, this is my favorite way when we make tacos. Um, it's just, <laughs> we can't get it all the time. You know what I mean? Like it's obviously yeah. we, there's not 40,000 of them lying around with the farmer. It's he has what he has. And we often buy them out and we put them in the freezer. And then for our family, we usually make, I think three cows tongues, which is the equivalent of maybe like six to nine pigs tongues, depending on the type, yeah. the size. Cause they're That's- just, yeah. That's like, there's two to three pounds each typically. That's a, that's, that's a fair, it's a fair amount of meat right there. Well, but I, but it's, it's like, it's as much work to cook one as it is to cook yes. three. So might as well cook three and yes. have lots of leftovers. And I do think a lot of it cooks, uh, cooks away when, it, when we slow roast it, whether it's either in an Instapot, when we wrote Beyond Bacon there, we didn't really use an Instapot. So we were using like a slow cooker type thing. Um, that meat doesn't seem to hold up the same way like three Mm. pounds of ground meat would do you know what I mean and I think part of it is because we're peeling off that outer layer and a lot of it is also um it's a fattier meat so it's melting away a little bit and and different kinds of things like that so I'm just saying like this is when when you have one of a lot of these different pieces um maybe the exception is like a neck or something like that it's it's good to remember that it's not going to feed like a family of four, you know, just one. Even even neck. I mean, the bones in the neck are quite big. I'm always disappointed about how little meat there is. Also because it's so good and you just want more. Um, but neck, I always find like, oh, yeah, I did the math wrong on this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. We already talked about heart. Uh, so I think we need to go to liver. Okay. So here's my surprise liver application. And we have an AIP friendly um, liver mousse recipe mm-hmm. on the blog. There's also liver pate you can make. I personally like eating them with apples. That's the big like, whoa, they <laughs> uh, bitter apples. And that's not the right word. What do they call 
tart, like a, like a granny Smith. Yes. Like a, a tart yeah. apple balances the flavor of liver so well. And there was a period of time where I was making so much liver mousse and eating it with apples in the movie theater that people were making fun of me. And now that I'm mentioning that, I'm like, Ooh, we, we, we need to make that again. Um, cause it's been a while, but my favorite application for liver is actually gravy. And, um, that's the way that I get my kids to eat it. So when I make liver mousse, I'm the only one that will eat it. And I love it with <laughs> apples, but I'm the only one. Um, maybe Wesley. Wesley's pretty adventurous and he loves apples. So he'll eat anything that he can put on an apple. But uh, liver gravy offers a really subtle um, texture is usually the thing that bothers people about liver. And so if you make it in a gravy, either you're pan frying or um, in my ideal scenario, like you're using a piece of meat in an Instapot and there's juice and there's maybe some vegetables and different kinds of things in there that then you are blending with your cooked liver and making a gravy out of. And I honestly, genuinely cannot taste the liver that way. And it's one of the the few, it's the only application that my kids will consume liver voluntarily unless I'm mixing it into um, like ground meat and stuff like that. And I yeah. know Sarah, that's your, that's our go-to. Um, so I have li- what we, we've, we've gone to calling them from calling them hamburgers to just, we call them liver burgers now. Um, but it's usually like two pounds of ground beef to one pound of ground liver. And my, my super awesome trick for doing that is to actually take it from frozen, let it thaw in the fridge for about an hour and then grate it on the box grater. I think, I think that is the way it's a, it's like a little bit more hands-on time than say putting it in the food processor or through, um, it's, it's messy through a home meat grinder. I would not recommend putting liver in a home meat grinder. Um, but you could do it in just like a food processor as well, but grating it from mostly frozen is the best in terms of texture because it's small enough that it kind of melts in with the ground beef, but it doesn't, when you do it in the food processor, it can make the beef really, um, just kind of, uh, uh, softer. So it won't hold together as easily say on a barbecue grill. Um, now granted, I already said that I typically cook these six or seven pounds at a time on baking sheets in the oven for 25 for 15 minutes is great. Um, but I think the the classic, you know, people would rather have a like pan seared burger or a, a barbecued burger. And I think when you when you grate on a box grater the liver to mix in with the ground beef, just it's just a, then it's then you're dealing with something that is very familiar in terms of the texture and in terms of how it holds together. Um, and then if it's like of a stronger flavored liver, then I'll dilute it more. So maybe I'll do one pound of liver to four or five pounds of ground beef. And so it really just depends. Like pork liver, I think is the strongest. And that was, that's the one that I would dilute the most. And then something like lamb liver or buffalo bison liver is pretty mild. Typically, um, I've got, uh, alpaca liver from a local farm about a year ago. And that was very mild, um, just really lovely flavor. So uh, also, uh, yeah, Rewind. so good. I've never heard of alpaca meat. I've heard of ostrich meat. Uh, ostrich meat is also great. So um, uh, Buffalo Gal, um, uh, Shally Carroll has a farm like an hour and a half drive from me. And so I try to about once a year, like drive out to the farm and buy. She does 
lamb and buffalo and alpaca meat. And she has the most amazing alpaca. Like if you live in the Atlanta area at all, it is definitely worth a trip out to Carroll Farms. And she also does some local farmer's markets, just not mine. Um, But uh, she does alpaca meat and uh, her alpaca sausage is so phenomenal. I shouldn't be telling anybody this. I should be hoarding it all for myself. Um, But then also she does, she has water buffalo and that is, it's not quite the same as bison. It's a whole new experience. And then that's um, the buffalo tallow is the basis for all of her skincare products. So uh, buffalo gal on the interwebs. Um, But yeah, so I, you know, I like to I like to mix things up as much as I can. Um, but yeah, alp- alpaca liver is probably the best liver I've ever had. Like it's, it's, you want to eat it. That's the only liver that I would actually just fry in a frying pan and then eat straight. It is that good. Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say 98% of people are not going to feel the same way, but <laughs> it is good to know that it's more mild to use in the applications we're discussing yeah. if you're not ready to pan fry and eat like Sarah, who also says kidneys are her favorite food. And if you could see my face right now, it would be full of sarcasm. But do you also remember like when we first podcasted? 100%. I was the I one who like, pointed you to that show. I would do show. anything except kidneys. Yep. Anything. If the kidneys are the worst, I would eat any, I would eat anything before kidneys. Yep. And uh, I developed a taste for them really quickly once I started. I think, you know, it's the classic um, getting over your own... Uh, <laughs> your own roadblocks, mental roadblocks and, and exposure and also trying kidneys from different animals. Um, that was very, very helpful for me, uh, trying, preparing it different ways and familiarity, but also that recognition of how there must be something in kidneys that I'm, I'm just like, just need more of because of all of the organ meat too. It's the organ meat that I notice it energizes me. Like there's something about it that I'm, I'm noticing in my physical health. So I think that, you know, there's certainly plenty of scientific studies showing that, uh, being able to psychologically associate feeling good with a food will lead to a preference for that food. And I think that's what's happened with, for me and, and kidneys. Yeah. It's such a good point. And maybe, I don't know if we have more to talk about, but I think we're, I think we're about wrapped up. Other mm-hmm. detail. Okay. Tripe. You forgot tripe. Okay. Well, I just want to point out that I, I do think that that is um, next level. <laughs> well, I'm not even going to go to tripe next because we made it and we'll never make it again. Um, but yeah, I I just want to emphasize that the reason that we're talking about this stuff is because it's so nutrient dense for you. And one of the things we haven't really talked about is that if you have a deficiency in one of your organs, so, you know, I got... Um, I've had several people reach out to me about liver problems or different kinds of things like that based on um, different kind of health stuff I've talked about in the blog. Um, and your, your, let's say, liver function isn't ideal, then eating more liver will help because it has the nutrients in it that your body needs for mm-hmm. improved function. And so, you know, a lot of people have thyroid issues. Well, then consume thyroid for that. And that's essentially what your medicine is, is dehydrated thyroid if you're not on a a synthetic version. So it's like focusing on the organ meats that you need in your health. Like if your organs are struggling, then consuming that organ in another animal will give it 
give you the nutrients that you need. And I think that's why um, we feel so much better and energized when we eat these foods because they're so nutrient dense. And we're not telling you that we're going out and, you know, biting into a raw liver zombie style and saying, "Mm, isn't this great? Like, there are people who love, you know, rare liver and think that it's great. But those of us who've been raised on muscle meat, it tastes different. The texture is different. It's, it's something that you have to will yourself to do. But just like feeling so great with sticking to a grain-free diet, you might feel so great, you know, adding organ meat that you want to do it. And I, I honestly think that's one of the reasons that heart works so well for me is because I've always had issues absorbing iron properly. Um, and it's like one of my favorites and I love it and I feel good eating it. And so if you find that you try these foods and you feel great on it, like Sarah with kidneys, you can have transformation. Like your, your <laughs> mind might switch for you and you're like, wow, this, I feel really great. I'm going to eat more of this and I'm going to try different applications of it. And that may be where our question is coming from, right? Like I feel good with these foods, but I'm kind of bored of this one application. So Good news. Google, cookbooks, all those things are available. <laughs> and and like we said, beyond just Sarah and I's cookbooks and blogs, the, the other person that really uses a lot of these ingredients in traditional preparation and delicious ways is Russ Crandall of The Domestic Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have never had a recipe of his that I've been disappointed by. Like I just, yep. he's That's a rock star. Really yeah. Yep. He's, he's um, my go-to, especially when I'm branching out to cuisine styles that are not familiar to me. I'm like, well, let me see what, if Russ Crandall's done something like this before. Aha, there it is. Oh, I don't need to do it. Um, okay, so I'm just, the only thing I'm going to say about tripe is I think that um, Chinese preparations are the most flavorful and the best from a texture perspective. I've cooked tripe uh, both sort of like the traditional dim sum way. Um, you know, substituting like coconut aminos for soy sauce, that type of thing. And I've cooked it in the traditional French way. And the French traditional French way is not my favorite. I did not like it. It was very disappointing. Um, and then the, the sort of Chinese preparations are just like surprisingly delicious. Just like, like really, I enjoy it. Um, it used to be one of my favorite things to order at dim sum. So um, I, I think that is just a reflection of the fact that uh, that cultural uh, cuisine has tripe nailed. I So I actually don't mind the taste. When it was made and consumed, I enjoyed it. The problem was the preparation. And so what I want to say is when you're – when you – purchase your tripe or stomach or basically any of those um, food processing organs, which are traditionally made with the same preparation that you're talking about. We made a recipe in Beyond Bacon using them as noodles for pho um, because we often find them in pho and it was inspired by us from that perspective. But um, it's stinky. It's it's intense. I'm not going to lie yeah. to you. Like, it does it, and it has to be boiled for so long. And what you're talking about is poo-smelling steam filling up your house. And it's hard to want to eat it after that. And so if you can buy it already prepared, I don't think you'll have any mm-hmm. problem. Beef like, tripe make- is, also, is also a very different experience from pork tripe because it's the one stomach versus three stomachs thing. 
I just, my brain exploded. Like, as he's, I was like, well, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> beef, beef tripe doesn't, it, it's a lot of work, but it doesn't smell the same. Okay. Um, but it's a lot, with a pig, the intestines are right there next to the stomach. With a pig, there's three stomachs and you usually only eat the first two. With a cow. Like honeycomb tripe is the second stomach. Okay. Yeah. All right. We have... I was like, oh, this is going to be a super quick answer because we've talked about this before, but no, it's uh, Apparently, not. we've broken a new record for longest show. Welcome to the Paleo View <laughs> where we don't know how to not talk. Um, That's it. But if you've been here before, you're not surprised. You got, you got to the end of this podcast after a week of commuting back and forth. You know what to expect. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I just want to thank you and... Um, I am having a wonderful time in Europe right now, and I'm so excited <laughs> about it. Thanks for listening in. And I'm just going to say, like, how interesting it is because I, I mentioned earlier Wesley's on this, like, vegetarian thing. He also said to me that he is looking forward to trying snail. and But he said, I want to try it, but I don't want you to tell me that that's what I'm trying. Can you just order it for me and give it to me. And then after I've eaten it, you can tell me that it was snail. And I was okay. like, okay. It's delicious. It's it not really is. And I, I told him, I said, you know how we eat like oysters and shrimp? I said, that's what a snail is. It's no different. And he's like, oh, okay. And I, I love the idea that he wants to try a new thing and he doesn't want a preconceived notion of it being gross to ruin it for him. But then when I explained that it was just like, like some, something yeah. else, he's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. And I'm like, honestly, it's delicious, Wesley. I think you're going to love it. And he's like, okay, I'm excited. So hopefully we are eating our own expanded menu out in Europe. And um, I hope that this show has inspired you all to try something new and that uh, your preparation is not uh, off-putting. <laughs> that the taste is, is not off-putting either. And just remember that you're doing it for your health and you're doing it for respecting the animal and the earth and all of that kind of stuff. We can't always eat pork chops and steak. Um, so it's good to venture out and, um, respect the whole animal. And we'll put a link in the show notes to my cookbook beyond bacon, which is really in, ode to eating nose to tail, but it is pork only. Um, and Sarah and I both have cookbooks where we use organ meats and all of them. My cookbook, Real Everything, has organ meats and even my kid book, um, You Like a Dinosaur Does. And Sarah, I know all of your cookbooks. I have a whole chapter in the Paleo Approach cookbook that is just awful. But... <laughs> But not awful. awful. O F F A L. <laughs> well, I, because we just think it's really important um, from all aspects to include that as part of um, a healing, healthy lifestyle and um, respecting animals. So I love this question. I love being able to tackle it, as you can tell from our extremely long show. Thanks for hanging in and listening this long. And we will. Of course, be back again next week, which is really just like two days from now when we record again, Sarah. You gotta get these in before you go. Doot, doot, doot. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite Paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.